RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. I mean, the way that I would summarise it is the case set decides the narrow ratio is that an underwriter who fails to put two and two together is entitled to rely upon his own intellectual laziness. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC and in each episode I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Professor Rob Merkin KC. And this is part two in our discussion of the historical origins of the duty of good faith. Rob is an academic specialising in insurance law. As Dame Sarah Cockrell, commercial court judge, has said, it is a truth universally acknowledged that however many cases you read, Rob Merkin has read more. Rob has a long list of professorships, Reading University, Chinese University of Politics and Law, the University of Auckland, and he is Professor Emeritus at Exeter University. He lectures and writes extensively on insurance law, and he has recently published a magnificent book in two volumes and 1,300 pages, entitled Marine Insurance, A Legal History. In our previous episode with Ian Anderson, we discussed Carter v. Burm and the historical origins of the duty of good faith. But there is more, much more, to the story of good faith, which is what we're going to discuss today. So Rob, welcome to the podcast. Many thanks, Peter. It's a great, great honour to do this. Thank you. And um, how did you end up becoming a specialist in, in insurance law? Because uh, you know most universities don't really do insurance law at all. So how, how did you end up being sort of the, you know the preeminent in, insurance lawyer? Uh, by accident, when I was doing my master's degree, I had to choose four topics, and I, I chose three, and couldn't find a fourth. And one of my classmates, uh, Dame Laura Cox, a retired high court now a retired high court judge, said, "Come and do insurance law." So I did. But what I discovered was that there were no academic writings on insurance law. It was all the heavy tomes. And I thought, this is fascinating stuff. There's got to be some academic mileage in this. And so I made my mark. And um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've ended up writing this enormous, <laughs> enormous book on kind of the legal history of, of marine insurance, how it's developed. Uh, how did you end up writing that? Well, it was meant to be a retirement project, but uh, it sort of got advanced a bit. I gave a couple of talks probably a decade ago, looking at various aspects of the Marine Insurance Act and, and seeing whether the act matched the previous common law. And I discovered that on various points it didn't. But the Act was a very inadequate codification, in my view. This is the 1906 Act. Sorry, this is the Marine Insurance Act 1906, apologies. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting just to go back and see exactly where the Act has departed from the common law and and, uh, how it matches? There are something like 3,000 cases decided up to 1906. That's something of a, of a daunting task to, to do that. And what I discovered by taking a, a chronological as opposed to thematic approach was that the law was very clearly divided into a number of eras. Up until 1815, virtually every case was on war risks. So all of Lord Mansfield's judgments, Lord Ellenborough's judgments, were all about seizures at sea dealing with French, American privateers and captures and pirates. So when you get to 1815, 
the whole atmosphere completely changes because there is no war at sea after that, in if, until another century at least. And at the same time, you have the advent of iron replacing wood, steam replacing sail. So a whole new range of issues arise in that era. So if you look at the pre-1815 period and the post-1815 period, you've got completely different issues arising. In the 1850s, you get the, uh, the telegraph, so you've got instantaneous communications. So again, some of the doctrine that was based upon the fact that it took six months for information to get from, say, the East Indies to, to London, disappear in that period. And so the issues then become different again. You don't really get that by looking at the subject thematically. You get it by looking at it chronologically. Anyway, I, I, you know, I regret to say, Rob, that I haven't yet read the 1,300 pages of, of the book, but uh, I, I will do. Over time, I will do. Um, right, let's get going. First of all, we need to start with a brief uh, resume of, of the last episode of On Carter v. Burham. Um, I'm going to start, I feel slightly trepidatious about summarising a case in front of you, but uh, um, in the 1760s, the governor of Fort Marlborough, a trading station in Indonesia, uh, he bought insurance uh, for his possessions. And when he claimed on that insurance, uh, the underwriter alleged that the governor had failed to disclose some key facts. As such, the underwriter refused to pay. Uh, and that dispute ended up in front of Lord Mansfield, um, and he stated that the insured owed a duty of utmost good faith to the underwriter. Uh, the insured, I suppose the way he expressed it was, the insured was under a duty to provide enough information to the underwriter to allow the underwriter an opportunity to value the risk appropriately. Um, however, and to my mind anyway, the, the, the surprising element of the decision um, despite the fact that the insured did not disclose everything, apparently, to the underwriter that the, the insured knew, um, Lord Mansfield decided in favour of the, of the insured. And, and yes, the insured had failed to disclose some facts to the underwriter, but these were things that the underwriter could have worked out for himself. So uh, Lord Mansfield said, no, the insurers can't avoid the policy. Um, and in that sense, it was quite an insured-friendly decision. Um we discussed all that in, in the last podcast, but do you agree with that or, or are you going to correct me at this point? I, just a small number of corrections. First of all, Lord Mansfield didn't use the phrase utmost good faith. He used the phrase good faith. And one of the things that you can now do um, is a, a word search, which couldn't have been done 20 years ago. You can do a word search on the English reports. And you discover that the phrase utmost good faith is hardly ever used up until 1906. And in fact, one of the, the cases that we'll be discussing today, Bates and Hewitt's, is one of the first cases to start using that terminology. So I think that it's fair to say that Carter and Berm was a, an insured friendly decision. Basically, the underwriter is assumed to know what everyone else knows. We're going to, in historical terms, we're now kind of rolling forward um, about 100 years uh, and we're going to discuss the, the, the case of, of Bates v. Hewitt, uh, which is a case arising out of the U.S. Civil War. Um, so uh, we can't assume that everyone knows the basic facts of the U.S. Civil War. So before we start talking about the case, uh, could you just give us a brief overview of, of the U.S. Civil War? The American Civil War was, in essence, uh, a number of southern states leaving the Union unilaterally um, to preserve slavery. And President Lincoln deciding rather than to let them go, that he would try to get them back into the fold. So hostilities broke out. 
Britain wasn't quite sure what to do, so it declared neutrality. It didn't recognize the Southern Confederacy as a country in its own right. So the American, the North is regarding the Confederacy as pirates because they have no legal status. Britain has no view on this at all. But the problem the, the Confederates had was that they have no shipbuilding capacity. And they are reliant upon exports of cotton to the UK. And what the North does is to blockade the southern ports. So what you have is a situation where the South cannot export, cannot get provisions, cannot get arms, cannot get revenue. And that is really the scenario that we find in the middle of 1861. Now, the, the British view was that we wanted to have the supply of cotton. We were anti-slavery. On the other hand, we were quite pro the idea of America being split into two because it's to our commercial advantage for that to happen. So we didn't recognize the Confederacy. We just declared neutrality and we agreed not to infringe any of the US rules on blockade. And the dispute um, specifically that, that we're talking about is uh, related to a ship um, that was built a year or so after that, um, 1862, 1863. Uh, and it was built on the River Clyde um, up in Scotland. Um, and at that point, it was called the Japan, and it was designed as a blockade runner. Now, what is a blockade runner? Okay. Uh, if you've seen Gone with the Wind, you will know the most famous blockade runner of all time. Um, who features in tragically i have never i have never watched gone with the wind i'm okay. i'm ashamed to say well that's four hours of your life you've probably saved um <laughs> just to, just to go back a step there were three types of vessel that the confederacy needed first of all they're being blockaded they want warships to try and lift the blockade they can't get them they have no shipbuilding capacity of their own britain cannot build warships because that would be an infringement of our foreign uh, enlistment act and the confederacy tried to get them from france but in the end france backed away as well so warships were out of the question the second type of ship that the confederacy needed was was blockade runners now the way that um you could trade despite the the blockade of the coast was to get small fast ships to slip through the blockade at night uh, and so what was happening was that these ships were being built in britain and sent to the Confederacy. And the way that the, the system worked was that British ships would leave British ports carrying cargo for the West Indies or for Mexico or for other ports near to the Confederacy. The goods would be unloaded and then shipped onto blockade runners and then at appropriate moments when nobody was looking, slipped through American lines. And that's how the blockade was broken. And that's why blockade runners were so important for the Confederate economy. What the Americans then did was to apply a doctrine that Britain had implied during the Napoleonic Wars, which is called the continuous voyage principle, whereby the voyage from Britain to the Caribbean was deemed to be part of the breach of the blockade. So what was happening was that British vessels carrying British cargo heading to British ports were being arrested by northern vessels in the middle of the Atlantic. And you can imagine the political fallout from that. So are you telling me that the British shipbuilders built ships 
deliberately for the Confederacy, which we then sold to the Confederacy, the, the, the southern states. Yes, but, but these ships were not armed, so there's no breach of okay. the Foreign Enlistment Act. They're, they're articles of commerce. As a neutral, you can sell anything to either side. Okay, okay. I, 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 had, I had no real understanding historically that we, in that in that way, supported the Confederate uh, army. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. The third type of ship is 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 the the commerce destroyer. We have to go back to prize law, um, which was developed basically during the Napoleonic Wars, although it has got a, a longer history than that. But under established principles of prize law, enemy vessels and enemy cargoes can be seized, taken to a prize court, and if they're found to be enemy, condemned and then sold, and the proceeds go to the, the captors. But the point was that the South had no ports, had no price courts because it was being blockaded. So if it seized any US vessels, it had nowhere to take them. So under international prize law, it couldn't condemn them and it couldn't sell them. So what they decided to do instead was burn them. So there were law books on the, on these commerce destroyers. It was a very, very curious system. Um, so, okay, so we have these 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 three ships, uh, the blockade runner, which is what the, as it was then, the Japan was designed as, um, and you have this kind of commerce destroyer. So, so the Japan, as a blockade runner, was sold to the Confederate government in spring 1863. But what happened then? Okay, again, if I can just go back a bit. We had some great problems in 1862 because the Confederacy sent agents to Liverpool and Glasgow, the big shipbuilding areas, and they were trying to get warships and, and other vessels equipped by British shipyards. And there was one particular character called James Bullock, who was the, the leading Confederate agent, who managed to commission and then sneak out of Liverpool two vessels, the Florida in 1862, April 1862, and the Alabama in July 1862. And Liverpool in 1862 was like Berlin in 1962. Agents all over the place. Uh, but these two ships managed to escape. A third vessel built in Glasgow called the Shenandoah was released legitimately, was sold to the Confederacy and was re-equipped in Melbourne. So there were three major commerce destroyers out on the seas at the time. They accounted for about 100 American vessels. And the total cost was estimated at about $15.1 million. Now, think back to 1865, and that's a substantial sum. Now, the, the British government acted late in stopping these ships escaping and made the decision that nothing more was going to happen. And so what Bullock had to do was to try and find means of sneaking ships out of Britain. And what he would do, and this is what happened to the Japan, it was built as a, a, as a blockade runner, which is legitimate, as we said before. It was purchased by the Confederacy in 1863. It left Britain perfectly lawfully, but it's not armed. It's sailed to Cherbourg, and when it gets to Cherbourg, that's when the crew comes on board. That's when the Confederate flag is raised. That's when it's announced that it's going to be a, a commerce destroyer. And so that was the means that was used in that particular case. Uh, and the vessel was renamed the Georgia. 
She spent a year burning in the way that I've described already, causing havoc. And on the 2nd of May, 1864, she was effectively cornered by three American warships and was chased into Liverpool. And that's where Bullock decided to sell her. Okay, so we have a ship that was originally started as a blockade runner, was uh, presumably arms and guns or whatever were added to it, and it became a, a commerce destroyer. But now it's been forced back into Liverpool. So you have, you have this Confederate commerce destroyer in the Liverpool docks. Yes. So at this point, we need to be introduced to the first of our, our characters in the litigation, um, Edward Bates, and he's the, the Bates in Bates versus Hewitt. So please give us a little bit of background information about him. Okay, he was a, a, a wealthy Liverpool ship owner. He owned about 60 ships at the time. His fleet later expanded to about 130. So he was a major player in this game. He later became an MP as well. One of the points about the vessel entering Liverpool is that under rules of neutrality, an enemy ship or a hostile ship is only allowed to stay for essential repairs. Now, the, the vessel stayed longer than that. So not only is it a wanted ship for being a commerce destroyer, it's also infringing the rules of neutrality by being allowed to stay in Britain. So on a number of counts, this vessel was very dodgy, to say the least. And so we're talking about the, the dodginess of it. So, I mean, as it turns out, Bates wants to buy the Georgia. Yes. Um, what, what are the legal problems with him buying the Georgia? Again, we have to go back to Napoleon. There was a decision in 1807 called the Minerva, which said that the sale of an enemy vessel to a neutral was unlawful under admiralty principles. Now, we're not talking about common law. This is all admiralty law. There are two reasons for that. First of all, it was quite often uh, a facade. It was a neutral in disguise, in effect. But secondly, even if the sale was genuine, what you're doing is providing revenue to an enemy. So for whatever reason, British Admiralty law did not recognise the legality of a sale from an enemy to a neutral. So the Minerva would have prevented this sale from actually taking effect. So there's a third reason why this ship has become very dodgy. OK, but my understanding was that when, when, it, when it was in Liverpool, the ship had been decommissioned. Um, so most of the guns had been removed, the armaments had been removed... It was basically just a bog standard ship again, just a merchant vessel now. Yeah. So didn't didn't that wasn't that enough to solve the problem? Well, Bates, to his credit, made it a condition of purchase that it was decommissioned. But the problem was, a it was wanted, and being decommissioned doesn't make it any less wanted. It's liable to be arrested and sold by the northern states. Secondly, it shouldn't have been in Liverpool at all. And thirdly, there's the issue of the Minerva. So although there's an attempt to cover things over by Bates, I think probably perfectly genuinely, it's still a ship that is wanted for, for three different reasons. And as I understand it, uh, was it Charles Adams, the US state's minister, is that equivalent of ambassador to, to yes. um, Great Britain? It, he'd made it clear he wanted it, he was going to have it. Yes, Charles Francis Adams, who's... Um, the son of John Quincy Adams, who's the son of John Adams. So he's got a long pedigree in American history, presidents in his background. He was the ambassador in London, but he was using agents in Liverpool to, to, to monitor what was going on in the shipyards. And he was the one who was protesting against everything that was happening about the Alabama and the Florida. He was in constant contact with the government almost daily. 
Um, and he made it very clear that if this vessel ever got out of port, it would be arrested. Okay, so the Georgia is becoming this cause celebre, kind of a, a well-known, it's a well-known ship. Um, and uh, But despite all of that, my understanding is that Bates believed that the decommissioning process did solve the problem, that that's, that's what he, he, he believed. Um, as such, he purchased the ship and then he refitted it for merchant service. Yes. Um, it set sail under British flag on 8th of August, 1864. Um, but <laughs> unsurprisingly, um, a week later, on 15th of August, um, it was captured by the Northern States of America, so the Unionists, um, off the coast of Portugal. Bates then challenged this in the US court, unsurprisingly, without any success whatsoever. Um, and then he made a, a claim on his insurance policy, the loss of the ship, the loss of the Georgia. So uh, at this point, we probably need to just go back a, a little bit because we, we just mentioned there about the insurance policy that he had, but we haven't talked about how he got that insurance policy. So could you talk us through his first attempt to buy a policy for the Georgia? What he did was to approach Lloyd's underwriter through brokers. Um, a man called Saunders, of whom we know virtually nothing. And he put the proposal to Saunders and the slip said, Georgia. Saunders said, is that the Georgia? To which the answer was yes. And Saunders' response is, well, goodbye then. Wouldn't touch it with, with a, a barge pole because he knew that this vessel was liable to be arrested the second it set sail. And that brings us to the second main character in our tale, because Bates may have failed with his first attempt to, to place insurance, but he tried again. Um, and he went to an underwriter by the name of Hewitt, uh, the Hewitt of Bates v. Hewitt. Um, so uh, do we know anything about him? Do we not have any background on him? No, I tried to find out some more about him. I've been through all the histories of Lloyd's. He doesn't appear in any of them. He doesn't appear in the law reports anywhere. So he's a, a man of mystery. Uh, but all we know is that he, A, he was an underwriter and B, he was a pretty sloppy one. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, because what, what happened, what, what did he do when he was presented with this risk? In essence, nothing. Uh, he was told that the ship was called the Georgia. He could not fail to have been aware of, of the fact that there was a Georgia. It was, as I say, it was a cause celeb. And he just didn't, put two and two together and that's that's the um that's the most benevolent explanation of what happened he just didn't, <laughs> it didn't get him on a friday afternoon or something like that so, so let's go back to when the claim was made so that the, the the ship is taken uh and uh bates makes the claim on his insurance policy that he, he obtained from hewitt um hewitt rather belatedly at this point uh tried to avoid the policy for for non-disclosure um and arguing that yeah, Bates was under a responsibility to uh, disclose the true identity of the ship. Um, Bates then challenged that decision um, and they trundled off to court. Um, so what happened at the first trial? Well, of course, it goes before a jury in those days. And the jury has to find as a matter of fact whether Hewitt knew or ought to have known. The jury found that he didn't know that the ship, the Georgia, was the, was the one that was being insured. The jury was pretty convinced that he ought to have known, but the judge was not satisfied there was sufficient evidence for the jury to reach that conclusion. So you couldn't impute knowledge simply because the name of the ship had been disclosed to him. 
So it, the decision went in favour of the underwriter. It went in favour of yes. Went in favour of of Hewitt. Okay, so Bates then appealed that decision, um, and okay, this is my little you know this is my view of it at this stage. Um, if the Court of Appeal was applying Carter v. Burn, then it seems to me that the appeal should have been decided in the favour of the insured, Mr Bates, um, because, as we've discussed, there was plenty of evidence that the underwriter Hewitt, irrespective of what the judge said, should have known that the ship in a past life had been this Confederate cruiser. Um, so, And in Carter v. Burn, the, uh, th- that level of knowledge had been sufficient for the court to decide in the insured's favour, because, you know, in fact, if anything... To my mind, at least, it, it, the facts in Bates and Hewitt were even stronger in, in, in favour of the insured. The court had accepted that it, Bates had an honest belief that the ship, having been decommissioned and now under the British flag, would be safe from, from confiscation. So, so we have, at least in theory, an entirely innocent non-disclosure in a situation where the underwriter had more than enough information to ask uh, the right sort of questions, as indeed the first underwriter, Saunders, had done. So in Carter v. Burn, that had been enough to decide in favour of the insured. Um, so what happened on the appeal and why? Um, well, if we just go back to Carter and Burn for a second, that occurred in the middle of the Seven Years' War in Sumatra, and it was known that there were French fleets around. So everybody knew that this particular territory was under threat. So I I think uh, I would respectfully disagree with your comment that that this is a stronger case than Carter. I think Carter is actually a a much stronger case for the policyholder because the insurers ought to have appreciated. In fact, they actually knew that this region was under French threat. What had happened here was that someone had failed to connect the name of the ship with a famous ship that was being talked about by everybody at the time. So I'm not quite sure that it's quite the same degree. But the interesting thing about the decision of the Court of Appeal is the swing from the pro-assured approach in Carter to the pro-insurer approach in Bates and Hewitt. Because there's a tension between what the assured knows and discloses and what the insurer ought to know for itself. And it would have been perfectly possible for the Court of Appeal to find in this case that even if the insurers didn't know, even the underwriter didn't know, he really ought to have done. He really ought to have made basic inquiries for himself. So what this case decides, and I think it's the first case to decide it in quite these terms, is that an underwriter can sit back, feet on the desk, cigar in mouth, brandy in hand, and say, tell me and I'm not obliged to do anything. I don't think that was what was intended in Carter and Bourne by Lord Mansfield. You mentioned earlier on that the Bates for Hewitt is one of the uh, first cases used the phrase utmost good faith. Does that sort of fit in with, with that sort of change as well, that there's, there's a change in mentality and therefore the duty of good faith becomes the duty of utmost good faith? It, 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 there is definitely a, a change in language. I'm not sure the words utmost was good, but you get things like full and perfect faith and phrases like that, which justify the decision. And what's interesting about this decision is the vehemence of the language. You know, the, the constant assertion, it's up to the insured. The insurers don't owe any duties to anybody. They just sit and listen. They're, they're passive recipients 
of assured information. As I said before, it'd been very, very easy for the court to have said on the basis of, of Carter and Boehm, you've got to do something. You've got to ask the right questions. But they chose not to do that. And that was really the turning point in the law. Because after that, you get a succession of decisions, all pro-insurer. Exactly. So, so uh, I was just going to say, I mean, the, the, when I look at it, it, it looks to me as though kind of Bates and Hewitt was the case or you know, the main case that then went on to define the way in which the duty of good faith has been interpreted for the 150 years or so after that. So effectively changing the duty of good faith into something which is much, much harder for insureds to discharge. Is, is that That's how you see it as well? That's absolutely it? right. It, I mean, the way that I would summarise it is the case set decides the narrow ratio is that an underwriter who fails to put two and two together is entitled to rely upon his own intellectual laziness. <laughs> yes. Um, and that brings on to the Marine Insurance Act. So you say we mentioned it already a bit earlier on, but the, the, the law was codified um, in 1906 in the Marine Insurance Act. So uh, effectively, the, the, the Bates v. Hewitt approach, would you say, became cemented into law in 1906? It's difficult to say because the act is, is, is quite vague. It talks about information that the insurers know or ought to know. And it doesn't really get into, into specifics about uh, exactly when an insurer is required to, to undertake investigations of its own. In fact, it doesn't, just, just doesn't deal with the point at all. And it may be that it was justified in not doing that because there is nothing in Bates to suggest that insurers owe any duty whatsoever. So the Act is really just a, a, a straightforward codification of what Bates appears to decide. Okay, and, and and during the 1900s was uh, so that yeah the 20th century was there any particular development in in the duty of good faith? I mean certainly in, in my early career um, in the sort of the 1990s um, and early 2000s, effectively the law was very the duty of disclosure was very much in favour of insurers. You know, there was effectively an obligation that. The insured had to disclose anything material, and anything material was virtually anything that the insurer would be interested in. Quite, yes. Uh, one of the problems in the 20th century is that you begin to get consumers coming into the market, but you're still getting Bates and Hewitt principles applied to consumer type contracts. So people are under a duty to disclose, but have no idea A, that there's a duty at all, and B, what, would, what its content would be, even if they did know. So the law becomes very, very rigid uh, until there's a partial relaxation in Pan-Atlantic and Pine Top in 1994, when they introduce the requirement of inducement that the insurer has to prove that it would have done something different had the truth been told. Because prior to that, the only test was what the objective underwriter would. So, so if, if, if this mythical objective underwriter would have regarded a particular fact as material, it didn't matter what the actual underwriter thought or did. And interestingly enough, the law was turned on its head because around about the same time as Bates and Hewitt, the objective test was clarified, but it was laid down that that test was there to prevent an underwriter relying upon its own idiosyncrasies. In other words, you had an objective test to protect the policyholder, not to protect the insurer. <laughs> but it became distorted in later years by allowing insurers to introduce evidence of, of their friends who would say anything as long as you'd say the same for them in return in the later case. So under Carter v. Boehm, you had a, a duty of good faith, which was quite flexible, quite commercial, quite sensible. It suddenly became rigid 
um, with Bates v Hewitt and actually just became more rigid as, as the 20th century went by. There were the beginnings of change in, in Panatlantic and Pine Top, which was, when was that, 94, 95, that's all there, 94. And consumer litigation um, that, that sort of came in in, the, in 2012. 2012. Um, but obviously, the, the key change in the UK, at least, um, is is the Insurance Act um, 2015, which states that an insured is not required to disclose facts that an underwriter knows, ought to know, or is presumed to know. Um, one analysis of that act is that it has, to an extent, <laughs> reversed Bates v Hewitt and has returned the law to the originally envisaged state as put forward by Lord Mansfield in, in Carter v Boehm. Is that a fair analysis or is that is that naive? There is certainly a much more detailed definition of insurer knowledge in the 2015 Act, because there's a, a an underwriter is deemed to know what it knows and what it ought to know and what its agents ought to know and ought to have disclosed to it. But I don't think there's anything on the face of the Act that actually reverses the, the tests in the 1906 Act or in Bates and Hewitt. That doesn't, however, mean that Bates and Hewitt's is still good law. And the reason I say that is, can you imagine the situation if Bates and Hewitt was to arise today? A notorious vessel is known to exist. A proposal is put to underwriters with the name of that vessel. The underwriter, and doubtless Hewitt, heard of the Georgia. He just hadn't put the two things together. But an underwriter thinks, hmm, well, I've got the internet here. How long is it going to take me to find out if this is the same vessel? And I think the world has completely changed. I think the the advent of the internet and the advent of of freely available information means that an insurer no longer can rely upon intellectual laziness. That's my own view. I think if information is freely available, easily discoverable, I don't see why an, 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 an insured should be expected to disclose that information as long as there's enough information given to the underwriter to, to make that connection. So my guess is that if Bates and Hewitt was to arise today, the court would say, well, turn your computer on. It would be fascinating to see what happens um, as sort of cases uh, come out of the woodwork and are decided on the 2015 to see whether that is actually the you know what happens. or Because the, the mentality now that you know, the insured must disclose everything um, is so ingrained in insurance law thought. Um, it would be interesting to see whether case law does change that and move it in a different direction. There is one important point, which is that the Law Commission chose to put into the Insurance Act a provision which says that you can make limited disclosure or full disclosure. As long as your limited disclosure is sufficient to put the insurer on notice, there might be further information. Now, that is really a restatement of the waiver principle. So why is it in there? And if you read the Law Commission documents, they say, because we want to make it clear that this is a signpost that insurers have to be proactive as well as reactive. And I think that particular provision in Section 2 of the Insurance Act is probably more important than the information provision, because the court can look at that and say, well, come on, we can't just sit there. Excellent. Well, I mean, we will see what happens. In in the last two uh, episodes of this podcast, we've sort of looked at the duty of good faith way back in the 1760s and now we're all the way up up to date so to, to 2022 
um, which I think that, that, that goes down as an achievement to do all of that in two episodes. But before we leave uh, the topic, uh, let's find out what happened to the main characters in our story. So do we know anything about the underwriter Hewitt? I and mean, presumably if we don't know much about him beforehand, we don't know much about what happened to him afterwards. No, we don't. We know that the vessel was arrested, condemned, sold, and uh, he wasn't liable. That's all we know. And uh, what, what about the ship? What about the Georgia? You say it was uh, it was condemned, but what actually happened to it? I think it was it was wrecked fairly soon afterwards. Um, it, it didn't last. It didn't have much of a career after that. Um, and Edward Bates, um, the, the the Liverpool ship owner, what became of him? Fascinating character. Became MP for Plymouth in 1871. Uh, he ran his fleet of 160 ships, many of which were known as coffin ships because they were just death traps. Uh, Samuel Plimsoll, who was desperately trying to persuade the government, successive governments to pass safety legislation, was vigorously opposed by Bates on every step. They were not the best of friends. In 1880, he was re-elected for Plymouth. Um, was forced to resign because of election expenses being fiddled. Uh, it turned out that he was he was investigated by two high court judges, and they found that they was this was done by his agents without his knowledge. I think Mr. Bates died in eighteen ninety six, and he so he died not too long after the, these no, events. He died very wealthy. Uh, yeah, yeah, as is often the way. <laughs> um, finally, Rob. Um, You've had a long career in insurance law and the, the academic side of it. But what advice do you have for someone who's thinking of becoming involved in the insurance world? I think two things. First of all, a lot of lot of law students, when the word insurance is mentioned, don't even bother to stifle their yawn, which is a huge mistake. The subject is so rich. It covers every form of legal discipline you can think of, statutory interpretation, history, common law, equity. It's a fascinating subject. But as you will know as a practitioner of it, the second point is that you just learn so much about everything. Every insurance case has a story behind it. And that story is an industry that you've probably never heard of before. And you realise how the world works. You just learn a lot about so many fascinating things. So I, I just think that I've had a, a fantastic career in insurance law. I don't regret a second of it. Thank you, Rob. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.